Podcasting from our secret compound in Silicon Slopes, Utah, overlooking the entire Utah Tech Corridor, this is the Utah CTO Show. Bite-sized interviews with Utah's tech leaders where we dig into the growth of the Utah tech scene, the stories behind some of the greatest local successes, and the secrets to growing tech leadership in Utah. And now, here are your hosts, Chris Jenkins and Brett Flake. Hi, welcome back to the Utah CTO Show. Today we have with us Sydney Tetro. She is currently CEO and co-founder of Forge DX and also co-founder of the Women's Tech Council. Sydney, welcome to the podcast. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Yeah, we really appreciate you being here. One of the things that I wanted to talk a little bit about today was more of your career. It's taken us a little bit of time to get you on the show because we've sort of trying to coordinate schedules and things. But as I've gone through and looked at your at sort of on your LinkedIn profile, all of the things that you've done, like you started out in CS and have sort of worked your way through tech in a variety of different roles. Tell us a little bit more about yourself and and how you evolved your career in, in tech, starting you know from a coding CS background. Yep. You know, I had an opportunity when I was in high school to be a software tester at a tech company. And that one experience kind of solidified for me the pathway that I took. So when I went into college, I actually started in electrical engineering and I switched Mm. over to computer science. I think I was one of three graduating females in my computer science class. I happened to minor in dance, which has the opposite, you know, (laughs) numbers inside of that. But I actually think that that created some interesting balance. And both of the disciplines, at the core of them, are creativity and really problem-solving skills in a creative fashion. For me, that's kind of been the theme through all of my career. I have always loved technology. I knew in high school I was going to pursue a technical field. The thing I didn't know is all of the doors that it would open. When I was in college and I was about ready to graduate, I put my resume in with every company in the career Mm -hmm. placement center. I did about 100 job interviews. Wow. Because everyone wants to interview a woman in tech. Yeah, <laughs> um, This happens still to be true today. There's actually fewer CS women graduates today than when I came out of my computer science degree, which oh, is wow. a really big focus, which is really um, amazing to think that. about that. Yeah. I think there are more women who are going into other types of tech fields that influence technology, whether you look at UX or product marketing right. or other disciplines. But in the core science of computer science, we have fewer graduates today. Mm. And as I came through that program, I started to realize that if I got my business degree, my MBA, that I'd have a whole bunch of doors open. But one thing that's been really true for me in kind of the story of my career is that having that computer science degree has made so many things possible. Because in in the computer science discipline, you not only understand what it means to program, but you understand the science underneath the architecture, right, and how things are built, Languages change. They're always going to change. That's not the relevant part of becoming a computer scientist. It's actually in the way that it teaches you to think, right? And in the way that it teaches you to build components that make something both scalable and reusable um, and the ability to deliver it in all sorts of environments. So that really became the theme for me. So for me, I've really used that computer science, not because I've spent every day coding, because I haven't, but because it gave me this foundation to create architectures for product And so I leveraged that into building product from the very beginning. When I was doing my graduate degree, my job was actually hex editing databases for some of the largest companies in the world to solve their (laughs) NDS directory services problems, which was, you know, just a really interesting kind of application. But I had this opportunity to really become the advanced expert in technology and then sit at the cusp of new technologies. And I think that's one of the things that I've loved the most about technology is that I get to sit at this leading edge of what becomes possible and what technology enables in all of the phases of the evolutions of transformation. 
I was thinking as you were talking about this and looking at how your career has evolved, you mentioned you know, certainly all of the learnings that you got around solving problems and being on the cusp of technology. How did that eventually lead you into wanting to do your own thing and found companies or start companies around these products? Because it's not something that everybody does. It's risky. There's a lot of business components that aren't necessarily the, the problem solving that you see in a technical mm-hmm. environment. What was it the catalyst that kind of got you into that wanting to do your own thing? So I spent the first half of my career all working for large companies, right? I worked from company to company. And while I was building things inside of those, that risk part, that's a big challenge, Mm -hmm. right? You sit in front of it and you're like, okay, so I've got a family now, right? You have bills that you're going to pay. I actually think your risk profile is is easier when you come out of school, right? Your (laughs) risk profile changes as you go, but you start to realize that over the course of your career, you're going to have many jobs. Like none of us sit in an industry today where we're going to have the same job for 20 years. It just doesn't exist anymore. Right? And so we become the drivers of our career. And we become the owners of what are the talents that I have and how can I use them and how do I use them both for good, to help my family, and to develop additional talents. And I hit this mindset. So I'd been working at all these software companies. And I was just coming off of a company. I was just you know in the midst of kind of changing jobs. And one of my friends who had... I was the, I actually ended up in a path of owning product marketing and management, being the CMO of a software company. We had sold part of it to a company that eventually became the Microsoft office here. And then we had been fundraising, but the CTO, he and I became the scrum masters together. He left a couple of years before and he went to head up research at Disney. Um, Ed Capnell had started a Disney research arm. And so he had created this research arm. And at Disney, what that means is these brilliant PhDs and academics who are solving problems that impact the Disney company. And he had been working on this. I was coming off this company, and of course, I'm thinking about like, oh, I've got ideas, but you know, it's risky to jump. Yeah. I talked to Tom, and he says, "I um, said, why don't you come down and interview? And we have this job. I'm starting this brand new program called the Entrepreneur in Residence Program at Disney. It's the very first one, and we have no idea exactly what this looks like. But come down and talk to us." <laughs> so I go down and I talk to Tom, and I come back, and he says, "Okay, Sid, if you want, we'd love to have you come on, but let me give you some caveats." I can't tell you what it looks like in six months from now. I don't even know exactly all the job entails today. We're going to figure it out together. There's a ton of unknowns, but would you like to come do this? And I was like, well, how many other times in my life am I going to have an offer to go work with Disney at really large-scale technology problems, even though I know nothing about how this is going to turn yeah. out? <laughs> and at that point in time, just from the simple ability to go learn and to go figure out like how I could apply that, I just jumped. And I said, I'm going to go do it. And from that moment on, my career has never looked the same. But I think everyone finds this moment in time where they say, it's okay. I can take my talents. I can apply them in many places. I can figure out what that road will be, but I'm going to take advantage of the opportunities in front of me that make sense. And I'm going to trust that it will find itself and work out. And it always does if you're willing to also build out the relationship ecosystem. Yeah, and that's funny that you say that because Chris and I both have recently changed our roles or the trajectory of our careers slightly. Myself from engineering to product management and you from product management to... uh, Yeah, business development, like around technology partners. You know, Mm. It's still sort of related because I'm dealing with the technology partners as closely as I had in the past, but just in a different, with a different outcome really that's being measured. So yeah, we definitely have changed careers that way. (laughs) So I don't know, like along those same lines, you're progressing in your career and you, you get bigger or, or better or different positions or titles or things that you're doing. Obviously, like a lot of what we talk about now is like imposter syndrome. And I have to say that starting at my position at Dwello recently, I've had this huge case of imposter syndrome. 
And so I'm just wondering if you have maybe some advice or something around that. Like, it seems like as the positions get bigger, the chances of that are higher, you know, like Mm -hmm. the chances of feeling that way. So there's two things that kind of over the course of my career I've woven in that I think are kind of relevant to this. So one is I often think about this idea of how do you really become fearless? So we all know those entrepreneurs, right, who just jump all the way in and you're like, they just are fearless, right? Like nothing phases them. And I don't always feel fearless, right? Mm -hmm. There are places where sometimes, whether it's criticism from other people or you feel inadequate in your skills or you question the decisions you made or choices you've even made in your career. So I think that we have this opportunity to figure out, like, how do we ourselves just be fearless and just go for that, right? And I have a couple of things I often think about. I often think about being one of those people that don't shut your own doors, which I believe is in the mentality of being fearless. I also believe that you just have to move forward and you have to be in action of moving forward. There are so many things that could paralyze us. I remember one of the times that I was fundraising for a company and there were a whole bunch of circumstances that had made it really difficult. And being a woman who goes and fundraises, right, my chance of raising money is lower. It's just the stats, Mm -hmm. right? And so I've got, you know, I remember talking to one of my mentors and he's like, Sid, you might have to go pitch your company a hundred times in order for someone to give you money. Okay, I get it. I'm a math person. I got it. Got my odds. I can go do that. And then you get on the road and you're pitching your company and 98% of the time someone's telling you something wrong, right? Whether it's you don't line up with their business thesis or did you make that right decision on your leadership team or in your product or in the customers you went after or the model. And so all of a sudden every day something's beating up on you. And it's in those moments where you get to figure out if you have enough grit to go forward. And the thing is, it might not end up in the exact same outcome, but you just have to be willing to say, I can solve this, I will solve it, and I will keep moving forward. And I think that's often the hardest thing to do. It's much easier to decide all the reasons something will fail than to decide the reasons it will succeed and to just push through those barriers. Can I share one other story? Yeah, for sure. Please do. Okay, so I was working on this really massive deal with Target, and we had spent six months, and I had a partnership with Marvel and with Star Wars and with Hasbro and Target. And we had all been working on this really big deal together. And we were getting down to the point of doing some installs. And I had a big hiccup actually in the delivery of our product as we were getting closer. And I didn't know how to solve it. And so I had a kind of a choice, right? I could have turned around and I could have said, hey, we're going to call back. We might not hit our deadline. Or I had the choice figuring out this. And I got this information at a Friday night at five o'clock. So I go in on Monday to my team and I said, I don't know if I have an answer to this. And I don't know if you do, but what I want you to do is play the game with me and let's assume anything's possible. And so the team brainstorms thousands of opportunities. We start going on the whiteboard. We write down every possible way to solve this problem. Um, And then everyone makes their phone calls to the resources, everything that we would need to fix the supplier component problem that we had. Come to find out that we solve the problem. Mm -hmm. We miss our install date by one day. Um, it might have taken 150 family members to like help us get everything you know done and assembled and and actually into the stores, but I really believe in this philosophy of you can do anything, and it really comes down to your belief in yourself. And even with the criticism that hits you, that you just are going to go through it, and you're going to do your very best job, you're going to make the very best decisions. And I think one of the things for me that guides me through that is learning how to have a very high emotional IQ. I think a lot of people are not either empathetic or aware of the circumstances and things around them, that also limits what they can become or how they view delivery. 
Would you ever say, though, that you have actually failed at something? I have failed plenty of times. <laughs> yeah. Right, because it's just what happens, right? There have been projects that didn't work. There have been places where I could have made better decisions. There have been places where I made bad decisions that impacted things. I don't think you build a career without having failed. Have you taken those and then, I guess, leveraged that learning, I guess, to continue building your career? Because what I've seen is just personally as well, very similarly, that it's difficult to make those decisions and to keep moving forward knowing that there's a chance that you're going to fail. But then what you end up finding after going through that failure is that that helps propel you into sort of the next best thing, which is very interesting. And I'm curious if similarly that's how you've experienced it. Yep. I think that everything that you do has an opportunity to teach you something. Right. And it's ultimately about what you learn from that and how you apply that, because it can either hold you back or it can move you forward. I always think about badness. Right. What's my best alternative to this negotiated agreement? Right. So what's the what's the worst thing that's going to happen? Because oftentimes the worst thing that will happen if you put yourself out there is someone says no. But then at least, you know. Right. And I think oftentimes that's the hardest thing for people to realize is that all of that dialogue in your head was actually in your head, and you don't know the answer until you just go ask someone. Yeah. (laughs) So one other thing I was thinking about as you were talking is around here in Utah, you know, you've built quite a career. You've done quite a lot with different companies. You've started different companies, run different companies. And here at the Utah CTO Show, we often talk about how we can help younger engineers go into management and start growing management as a career path. And most folks that come in here and interview with us say there's really – You have to decide what type of person you are. You're either an engineer and you're going to code and be an architect or you're going to go down the management path. Like that's it. Mm. Those are like the only only paths. And both Brett and I, we've hired managers. We've been managers. Like we've been in these positions. I'm curious as you are sort of building out your career or have built out your career here in Utah, like what you have seen in terms of engineering management and how somebody can grow into a manager in engineering in computer science. So I believe there is absolutely um, a pathway in either direction. Um, I think it's really all about the desires that you have and the investment that you are willing to make in the skills to become good at something. To be good at being a developer, it takes time, it takes dedication, it takes learning. To be a good manager requires the same thing. It requires learning new skills and taking those on. And so I really believe that – now, sometimes we think about computer scientists as a little more introverted, right, which I think mm-hmm. is what also we makes are. that hurdle, <laughs> right, a little yes. harder, right, because you think about managing people. But at the end of the day, you need great people managers. Teams do not execute without people who lead them, right? They need people who help make, the, make good trade-offs, who help organize them, who value them, who trust them, and who help invest in their success. And so if that's a path that you're interested in, then you absolutely, I believe you absolutely have the opportunity to do that. I have hired a lot of really great engineers and have seen them move to become amazing managers. And some of them have even sat in both the manager and engineering role at yeah. the same time, right, across the way. But what you're really looking for when you build teams are people who are willing to take their talents and help the collective of the company move forward. And in whatever way that they want to do that, you're willing to invest in helping them get there. So if you have an engineer who, who is willing and says, I want to figure this out, I think it also is the responsibility of the managers and the team around them to help invest in tools that make them good. I remember when I very first became a manager, I think I was a really bad manager. 
Right? I just think I was, right? For all the reasons that make people bad managers, right? You think about, I have to control things. Yep. You think about how you micromanage, micromanage. Yeah. right? Like all of those things that we've experienced and we know better, right? And so how do you help people who are younger in their careers understand what it makes to be an amazing manager? For me, the barometer that I often think about is as I switch in different things in my career, are there people who would still want to work with me? Because that tells me if I did a good job in valuing who they were and what they do and their contribution. So when I think critically about, like, did I do a good job? That one always weighs on me. Would those people want to come work? Could I call them up and would they do and would they want to work with me? And because if the answer is no, I did a really bad job working with them. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so you talked about creativity and emotional IQ and also just how the CS degree helped you just learn to think. But I wonder at kind of a higher level, just generally critical thinking, like what role that has to play in positions that you've had? I think critical thinking, and I'll, I'll tie that to creativity just because I naturally yeah. do, are probably some of the most valuable skills. Even today, when I think about the number one skill that I hire for, it is creative problem solving. It is that ability. And what I think computer science gives you is the logical constructs mm -hmm. of building system thinking. Because right, systems thinking is a, a skill that a lot of people are missing, right? Yeah. This ability, even in engineering worlds, to think about, hey, not only is this component reusable, but what elements do I structure such that in a way that, hey, when something comes along that I didn't think about, I created a model or a method that makes it easy to extend and expand and even migrate. Because I see engineers all the time who don't think like that, yeah, who end no. up, I give them a requirement and I get this and I'm like, wait a second, like, you know, didn't you think to ask me these six questions? I remember I had this engineer who was working for me. Every time we would go in and we would do our sprints, right, and our scrum yep. planning, we're like, okay, how, let's estimate this user story, right? And we'd be like, okay, or we'd time box the user story into a spike, right? And we'd say, okay, you've got X amount of time. And then we'd be like double the time. And I'd say, hey, you know, what's happening? He's like, oh, I refactored all the code because of this one, you know, thing right. I thought about. <laughs> I'm like, well, could you just have raised your hand and said when you hit the dime box, like, hey, I'm thinking about this. I think it's an issue and let's discuss it because oftentimes they don't you know, think through that. I think that's one of the things we need all of our engineering talent to think yeah. really well about is that system thinking. Um, in my day job today, I get to really use a lot of my technical background. So we created this product experience platform, but we help big companies like Verizon um, showcase what their technology does. So mm -hmm. I get to spend all of my days thinking about how is 5G changing the world? How does AI play into that? What does it look like for IoT sensors, location-based services? What are networks and connectivity doing to change the way that our physical to digital infrastructure happens? And I think what makes me do that job better is the fact that I actually understand how things work. And so when I go to think about the user experience that someone must have and, or see in order to understand why to buy something, I fundamentally understand the technical trade-offs that get made in the technology so that when you build an experience, it is one that could actually be adopted. Because that's the other gap we often have, right, is we sometimes invest in technologies for technology's sake. If you understand how technology will be used, you make technical trade-offs in the path of development that increase adoption faster. And I think that's one of the other things that a strong foundation in computer science, when you combine it with where both of you guys have now yeah, spent time in yeah. product management, <laughs> is critical. Sid, thank you so much for taking the time to meet with us today. We've learned so many awesome things just talking to you in this little amount of time that we've had. In fact, we didn't even get to touch on 
the Women's Tech Council, which I want to spend a lot of time on. We'd love to have you back on uh, to do more about that if that's something you'd be willing to do. Yeah, I'd love to do that. I appreciate the conversation. You guys are great. I don't know if there's if you're hiring or anything like that, but if anybody wants to get in touch with you or connect with you and the, the things that you're doing with the different passions you have, how might they be able to get a hold of you or, or reach out to your, your organization? I am always hiring. So <laughs> on both the development front, engineering front, we're doing – a lot of work around AI. Wait, everyone isn't, right? Like, yep, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, a lot of the AI components and a lot on the product management side, too. I think that's a really important skill set that technical people are very, very good at. You, so you can reach me. At, my email is sidtetro at gmail.com or you can find me on LinkedIn. And my name is spelled C-Y-D-N-I-T-E-T-R-O. Awesome. Thank you so much. And again, don't forget to subscribe to the Utah CTO Show. Give us five stars. Leave us a comment. Uh, thanks so much for listening. Subscribe now. Yeah. <laughs> if your computing infrastructure is running in a cloud service like AWS or Azure, you've likely sunk time into manually configuring and maintaining a monitoring tool. Tasks like understanding baselines, fine-tuning thresholds, and examining visualizations for defects require significant time and effort, taking time away from your most important priorities. Wouldn't it be nice if you could automate this monitoring and alerting process? That's where Blue Matador comes in. Unlike all other monitoring tools on the market, Blue Matador eliminates the need to manually configure alerts. After a quick onboarding, Blue Matador instantly discovers all of your resources, automatically creates hundreds of alerts out of the box, and proactively notifies you of critical production issues. This saves you massive amounts of time and ensures that you'll always know the health of your cloud services. And right now, they are providing a special offer to our listeners here on the Utah CTO Show. Just head to bluematador.com slash Utah CTO Show. Sign up for a free trial and integrate your AWS account or Kubernetes account for 14 days, and they will send you $100. They are so confident that you'll love their product that they are offering our listeners 100 bucks just to try it. So go to bluematador.com slash Utah CTO show to start your free trial today. Terms and conditions apply.